life-altering. And so, writer that I was, I had decided to write about Alzheimer's. I was going to force myself to confront what I'd been too scared to confront earlier, when the disease had been up close and personal. I was going to buckle down and learn all manner of important life lessons. I was going to make up for being a lousy daughter. This Alzheimer's magazine story was to be redemptive. So I spent time in the trenches observing other people's mothers, and I wrote about it. I peeled away maybe a layer or two, but I didn't feel much wiser. I had reached an impasse, and I thought I knew why. It was the distance I was keeping, the shield I was holding in front of myself to deflect the really tough stuff. It was my detached position as observer and writer. If I was to come to terms with this disease that took my mother's life, if I was to learn whatever it was I needed to learn, I had to stop hiding behind my reporter's notebook and get inside the world of Alzheimer's. And so, with the knowledge and permission of the staff, this was no undercover operation, I decided to hire on at Maplewood. I would immerse myself fully and completely in the daily lives of those with this disease. I would take care of other people's mothers, the way strangers had taken care of my mother. I thought I knew what I was facing. I'd read the medical reports, with their chronicles of unstoppable brain plaques, impenetrable neural tangles, and shrunken cerebral cortexes. I had read the heart-wrenching stories in the media, seen the documentaries. I had experienced my own mother's demise, her five-year transformation from the dotty aunt who makes you laugh at the occasional inappropriate remark to the old woman who can no longer feed herself. This was a disease that fractured life, that erased the past, that scoured the body of its remembered self. The portrait of Alzheimer's I had in my head was unremittingly bleak. I figured I could stand the job for maybe two weeks. There are five of us waiting in the lobby of Maplewood at 8.20 the next morning. Three women in their early twenties, a thin, sandy-haired young man who looks as if he doesn't need to shave every day, and me. Christine, who worked her way up from R.A., resident assistant, the bottom-rung job I'm here for, to M.A., medication aid, the shift supervisor empowered to dispense meds, to her current position of resident care coordinator, is running the show. She's a tough-looking woman, hard-worked, her hair brittle from home perms, her smile weary. She's 28. When Christine comes out to the lobby, she doesn't welcome us or introduce herself or offer a summary of what we can expect for the next six hours. Instead, she takes us back to the closet-sized, windowless break room, shows us a tiny refrigerator and a vending machine stocked with junk food, and tells us to clock in. We learn, before anything else, that we have a three-minute leeway when we clock in for our shift. 
If we punch in any later than 6.33 in the morning, we're considered late. Three late days, we're told, is grounds for termination. We also learn that if we're ill, we have to find our own replacement. If we can't, we must come in to work. If we don't come to work, we're fired. I'm more astonished than I should be. This is the way the world of minimum wage work operates. I've always worked for a living, but except for the usual scut jobs that saw me through college, I've led the sheltered, benefit-buffered life of a middle-class professional. After the sobering mini-lecture about all the reasons we could get fired, we are led back to the meeting room in the atrium at the center of the facility, where two-inch-thick packets of material await us. Christine tells us that we'll start with the...